Take your Bibles this morning and turn to John chapter 17, the Gospel of John in chapter 17. And if you're a guest here today, we welcome you. Glad that you're with us and invite you to pay attention and follow along in the scriptures this morning and ask the Lord to work in your heart this morning, open your mind to it. Sometimes there are, as a, as a preacher, sometimes there are messages that, that you preach that, you know, they're, I don't know, sometimes, sometimes they're called sugar sticks. I don't really use that term, but basically what it means is it's like something that, that you are passionate about, something you always like to go to, something that, that you have studied uh, a lot of, and it's a, a favorite of yours. And sometimes there are messages that you preach that are fiery messages. Like, and as you're studying, like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get them with this point here. And honestly, I feel like that's very sad when preachers do that. Um, because you need to be led of the Lord. And then there's sometimes when there are messages that, that aren't so fiery uh, per se in their content, but they're, they're more sober. They're, 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 som- they're somber in the fact, not that they're, they're heavy as far as uh, um, sadness, but they're, they're weighty in, their, in the meat. They're, they're weighty in their content. And, and, and you, you, you just need to give the Word of God. And, and I don't even know why I'm even telling you this other than the fact that it's sort of like that with what we're going to get to in John chapter 17. It's one of those passages where um, it's, it's not necessarily one that is going to be a fiery sermon, but it is so, it is deep, it is heavy, and it's weighty in its content. Uh, and, and all of God's Word should be that way. But John 17 particularly is the Lord's words. John 17 is about, it's what the Lord prayed to His Heavenly Father. And, and there's some, some, so much good and valuable truth. And, and even one of those passages, honestly, where, where I feel very inadequate. And honestly, that happens a lot, where I feel very inadequate uh, when it comes to preaching the Word of God. But that's okay, because it's God's Word, and that's, what it's, that's what's important, and that's what it's about. So I want to direct your attention to John chapter 17. We've worked our way to this chapter and if you haven't been with us, we've been walking through the Gospel of John. This is, I think this is Lesson 54 or 55. We've been here for over a year. And we're in John 17. And when we get to John chapter 17, uh, if you've been with us, you'll remember the things that I've, I've told you uh, regarding the, what we've been talking about. When you get to John chapter 17, there's a little bit of a shift in the narrative. And this chapter records Jesus' prayer to God His Father. And it comes on the tail end of all that Jesus had been doing to teach and prepare His disciples for what was just ahead. And so if you've been with us, you'll remember that Jesus has been teaching them in in chapters 13 through 16. Uh, It's all condensed, but it's a a short period of time. uh, The night before Jesus is crucified, hours before Jesus is going to be taken away to be tried in a kangaroo court, and ultimately hang on a cross. And Jesus is teaching His disciples about what it means to have a relationship with God, the Father. Talking about the vine uh, and the branches, Jesus has been teaching about what it means to love other people, what it means to serve God, uh, teaching about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, how He's going to send the Comforter to them, and how the Lord had plans for them even after Jesus is going to be gone. The Lord is investing Himself hours before He's going to be crucified into His disciples, preparing them for what is just ahead. But then you get to chapter 17, and the narrative shifts, and it records for us this prayer that Jesus offers up to God His Father. And we're going to spend a few weeks in this chapter, at least three, probably four, maybe five even. We'll see how all of this goes. But the chapter divides easily into three sections. In the first section, verses 1 through 5, which we'll consider today, 
is Jesus prays for himself. In the second section, verses 6 through 19, we find that Jesus prays for his disciples particularly. And in the last section, verses 20 to 26, Jesus concludes by praying for all believers, uh, even those to come, including you and me. And we'll get to that as we work our way through this chapter. But let me just give you some introductory comments. Let's read the first five verses. We're not going to read this whole chapter here, but the whole chapter records Jesus's prayer. But let's just read the first five verses. I'll give you some introductory comments, and then we'll start unpacking these verses, okay? Verse 1, these words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. In the Bible, you'll find probably, well, I've read this before. I've not actually uh, verified this for myself, but I've read that there's over 600 prayers that are recorded in the Bible. But none of them would match the splendor or the majesty of this one because it's the Lord's words. This is also the longest recorded prayer in Scripture as well. And we would truly say that this one is truly the Lord's Prayer. You've heard of the Lord's Prayer. Typically, that's referred to uh, in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is giving instructions on how to pray. That would be better called the model prayer than the Lord's Prayer. This one would be truly called the Lord's Prayer because these were His words that He prayed to His Father. Jesus prayed this prayer out loud, which is also interesting because Jesus did this for the benefit of His disciples. And we find, actually, that Jesus often prayed for the benefit of other people. And it becomes our benefit, and it becomes a blessing for us to be able to look in and overhear, if you will, this prayer that Jesus prays. In John chapter 11, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, the Bible says in verse 41 that they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid, and Jesus lifted up His eyes and said, Father, I thank Thee that Thou hast heard me, and I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. Jesus often prayed out loud for the benefit of others. And in this case, he does the same thing for the benefit of his disciples. Again, this is, comes right on the tail end of Jesus teaching his disciples. They're walking to the Garden of Gethsemane. Chapter 18 records that for us, that they walk into the Garden of Gethsemane. And so it's this time that Jesus is between the, the upper room and, and, the, and the Lord's Supper the, 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 that He observes with them and, and just preparing them for what is coming as they're walking to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus prays this prayer. And we find that Jesus did that out loud because He desired to initiate them into that same close communion and relationship that he had with God the Father. The setting for this prayer, again, it comes right after the Lord's words of comfort regarding the ministry of the Holy Spirit that he would send to them. And so that gives us some context. It gives us some, some insight. And so with that in mind... I want us to consider the first section of Jesus' prayer, verses 1 through 5, where Jesus prays for Himself. But there's one main theme or one main subject 
that we find in these words of Jesus that were for the benefit of the disciples, but also for our benefit as well. And so let's read these verses again, and you'll understand and you'll see what I'm talking about. The theme that we find and something that that drove the life of Jesus, the theme that we find is the glory of God. Jesus lived a glory of of God-driven life, if you want to put it that way. In other words, his ministry and his life was all about giving glory to God the Father. Now notice these thoughts in verse verse 1. Start there. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. The theme... And what we find that was something that drove Jesus' life, Jesus' life, was the glory of God the Father. And as we unpack these first five verses, I want us to draw out of it some prayer principles that we should emulate or follow in our own lives for the purpose of giving glory to God. Let's pray and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, Would you help us today with your word? And Lord, as we consider these truths, Lord, we uh, feel very inadequate, Lord, to explain them or expound on them or to, Lord, I just pray that you would, through the Spirit of God, use your word to impact each life and each heart and may the truth that you have for us today uh, resonate in our hearts and our minds, Lord, that it would Change us for the glory of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Several things I'm going to draw out of here just to, and I'm going to make comment on them. There's, there's several things. And I'll not belabor them too much. We'll see how far we get uh, in these verses this morning. We may not actually get all the way through all five of them. But the first thing I want to draw your attention to, again, this is a prayer that Jesus prays to his Father. I want you to look and notice Jesus' prayer posture in verse 1. The Bible says, These words spake Jesus and lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify Thy Son, that Thy Son also may glorify Thee. Notice Jesus' prayer posture here. The Bible says that Jesus lifted up His eyes to heaven. Now, we just read a minute ago, John chapter 11, or at least I quoted it for you, I read it for you. In John chapter 11, where Jesus prayed in, in raising Lazarus from the dead, the Bible says the very same thing in John 11 and verse 41. The Bible says, Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was, And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. Notice here again the same posture that Jesus has. He lifted up his eyes toward heaven. And when it comes to prayer, certainly you and I, we we pray with our heads bowed. We pray with our heads down. When we come into the presence of God, uh, we often will do that. And in, in, in many cases, people do it just because that's what they've been taught to do. In other cases, people do that because of a sense of, of, of humility and coming into the presence of the Lord. We, we would bow our heads, maybe we would close our eyes. And, and, and we understand that to be a, a, a prayer posture of others in the Scriptures. You remember the publican in Luke chapter 18 where the Bible says, that he wouldn't even so much as lift up his eyes unto heaven, but he smote upon his breast, 
saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We see his humility and the reason that he wouldn't even look is because he felt that shame and that guilt before God. But there are other postures that people take in the scriptures as well. The Bible records how Moses raised up his hands to the Lord. The Bible records how Daniel would kneel when he would pray before God. Others bowed down. Others fell on their faces before God in, 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 in prostrate, in humility. There's all kinds, it seems, of prayer postures recorded in the Bible. But Jesus looked up, lifted his eyes to heaven when he prayed. And you and I, we might feel like, well, if I ever did that, it would feel awkward or odd because I've been taught to bow my head. I've been taught to close my eyes, etc. But let me say this to you this morning. Because of Jesus Christ, because of what he has done on our behalf, friend, we actually can look up to God the Father, because, because we've been justified, we've been declared righteous if we're saved, if we know the Lord Jesus Christ, we enjoy a righteous standing before God because of what Jesus has done for us. Psalm 123 and verse 1, the psalmist says, Unto thee lift I up mine eyes. O thou that dwellest in the heavens, unto thee I lift my eyes unto the Lord. And all I'm saying is this, it speaks to our relationship to God now because of Jesus Christ. That we have access to Him. And the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 4 in verse 16 that because of Christ, who's our great high priest, who understands the things that we go through, who is in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin, he understands the feelings of our infirmities. And because of that, we can boldly come before the throne of God to find grace and help in time of need. Now, that's not to say we are proud about anything. We have no merit of our own. It's only because of Christ. But the point is, it speaks to our relationship to God now because of Jesus Christ. There is now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Praise God. We can boldly enter into the presence of the King because of the Son. Jesus lifted up his eyes. But then notice, secondly, in verse 1, that Jesus calls out to God by name. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father. He said, Father. He calls out to God by name. Now, God goes by many names in the Scriptures. He's called Wonderful. He's called Counselor. He's called the mighty God, but the one that Jesus used was Father. And we too can call out to Him as Father, but only when we're His children. If you're here this morning and you've never been saved, you've never repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ, God is not your Father. And you cannot call out to Him by name as Father, but He wants you to be able to. He wants you to respond to Him. He wants you to understand your sin guilt before Him. He wants to pardon you because of Jesus Christ and His shed blood on the cross of Calvary. He wants you to come in, in humility before Him. And the Bible says if you call on the name of the Lord, you can be saved. But you've got to understand your sin and your guilt before God in repentance in order to truly call on the name of the Lord. But we can call out to Him as Father, but only when we're His children. In this prayer alone, the name Father is used six times. And the word Father, and the, and the often used word Father, it shows the close relationship between Jesus and His heavenly Father. There's an eternal relationship between God the Father and God the Son. 
reflecting their intimacy and their love for one another. Certainly there's that. God is also the Father of Jesus when He took on human flesh. The angel said to Mary when, when she found out that she was with child, the angel said, that holy thing that is within thee shall be called the Son of God. And it speaks to Jesus' submission to His Father's will. Even though Jesus is God, even though Jesus is co-equal with God, as the Son of Man, as, as Jesus in, is God in human flesh, He was subject to and submitted to the will of God the Father. Now the Lord, in Matthew chapter 6, where we were at this morning in the Sunday school hour, that whole section in Matthew chapter 6, the model prayer, where Jesus is giving instruction on how to pray. He said, when you pray, pray like this, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And it reveals the amazing truth that we can pray and we can talk to, and we can approach the sovereign creator of the universe, but not in such a way that he is all-powerful all and almighty and unapproachable. Even though he is all-powerful, he is almighty, he's very approachable. We can approach him as our father, a loving father, who cares for his children. But it also shows us that we always need to come to Him in submission and humility, recognizing His authority over us. When I call Him Father, it, it talks about my relationship with Him in love and intimacy, but also He's my Father. He has authority over me. And I come to Him in submission, recognizing His authority over me. And listen, we can make no demands on God. We can approach boldly the throne because of Christ, but we can make no demands on God. And here's the other side of that. Not only can we not make demands on God, we also cannot dismiss Him when He speaks. Because He's Father. R.C. Sproul said this, he said the chief rule of prayer is to remember who God is and to remember who you are. And if we remember these two things, who God is and who you are, that He's the Creator, He's the Master of the universe, He's all-powerful, He's God. If you remember who He is and remember who you are, that you were an enemy of God, but now you're a son of God, that you were under condemnation, but by His grace you've been set free. That I'm nothing. If I remember those two things, our prayers will always and ever be marked with adoration for Him and confession. I think that's pretty powerful. Because we, can, we can't make demands on God. But so often we try, all so often we do, or so often we, yes, we can approach Him as Father, but that still should be shrouded and, and, and covered in respect and humility and adoration for who He is. Jesus called Him by name, Father. It speaks to His intimate love relationship with the Father, but it also speaks to His submission to the Father's will. But then notice this. He said, Father, the hour is come. Here we find Jesus aligning Himself with God's will and God's timetable. Those are impactful words when Jesus says the hour is come. The hour is come. It means this. It means, simply means the time has arrived. The time has arrived. What is he talking about when he says the hour has come or the time has arrived? It was the hour determined before the foundation of the world between the Father and the Son when the Son would make the payment for man's sin. 
Peter referred to it in his sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. He says, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves know. Him, Jesus, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Peter says this, you know that Jesus was approved of God. He did miracles, he did signs, he did wonders that nobody could do. You watched them, you witnessed them. God did those by him. And you've taken and crucified him, but not because it was of your own doing or your own power. He was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. What does that mean? Jesus says the time has arrived. The hour has come. The hour has come to fulfill God's plan and God's purpose for sinful men in this world, in the sacrifice of Himself. It was determined by God. And the application is simply this. God has a time, friend. God has a schedule. Did you know that? God has a schedule and a time, and you say, well, isn't God outside of time? Yes, He is outside of time. 2 Peter 3.8 says that a thousand years is as one day, and one day is as a thousand years for God. He's outside of time. But it doesn't change that God has appointed specific moments for His will to be done. Now, you and I should take great comfort in that. Knowing that God actually has a time in which He accomplishes His purposes and His activities. You've heard it said before, God is never late, God is never early, because He's always on time. And you know what? That ought to bring comfort to the life of a child of God, especially when we deal with struggle and hardship. You know, things can happen and it can sort of mess up your day, but it's not a, it's not a, a, a mystery to God. It's not something that mess, messes God's day up. He's fully aware and knew what was going to happen. You know what else is important to understand? That when, when you get exposed to God in your life, it's not an accident. It's divine appointment. God has a purpose. God has a plan. God has a time for all of His activities. You remember when God promised to to make of Abraham a great nation? And God said that Sarah is going to bear a son. Right? You remember all of that? In Genesis 21 in verse 2, when the time was right, the Bible says, For Sarah conceived... And bear Abraham a son in his old age, past the time of childbearing for his wife, past the years of production probably for him. For Sarah conceived and bear Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken unto him. I think that's pretty powerful. Because you and I can't always see, and we don't always understand exactly what's going on. But the fact of the matter is, is that God is writing history. God is absolutely writing history. He's absolutely in control. And and when it came to Jesus' words, the hour has come. Let's just take a little walk through some passages that show that God actually had a countdown clock, and it moved closer and closer to the exact time that His Son was scheduled to die on the cross. And it helps us see something. It helps us see that God is writing history, that God is doing what He planned to do a long time ago before the foundations of the world. And take heart in this, that God is still doing what He planned to do, even today. When Jesus was born, the Bible says in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, but when the fullness of time was come, 
God sent forth His Son made of a woman. At the exact appointed time, when the fullness of time was come, God had a time and a schedule. And Jesus came into this world on God's schedule and God's time. He grew into a man. He lived a life and a ministry here on this earth. And you know what? When He was uh, uh, ministering on this earth, when He was alive, he was, all of that was according to God's plan as well. No one could change the time appointed of God in which he would be subject to men. You remember when Jesus first was introduced or uh, uh, publicly became uh, uh, you know, ministering uh, in, in this world. Remember the, the first miracle that Jesus performed? It's called the wet, at the wedding of Cana, where Jesus turned the water into wine in John chapter 2. You remember in that situation, in that scenario, where they ran out and they didn't have any, and, and Jesus' mother Mary came to him and said, they don't have any. And you remember what Jesus said to her? In John chapter 2 and verse 3, And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. What is he saying? The time for me to be subject to the hands of men hasn't come yet. And nobody could change that because it was part of God's plan. In other times in Jesus' ministry, specifically towards the end of his ministry, the Pharisees hated him. People wanted to kill him. And the Bible says that, that there were times when they wanted to, they sought after him and they wanted to take him by force or they wanted to take him into their hands. They wanted to kill him, but they couldn't. Nobody could kill Jesus before the time. In John chapter 7, in verse 30, then they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him because his hour was not yet come. All part of God's plan. And nobody could change that when God was the one who ordained it. The death of Jesus Christ was scheduled. It wasn't an accident. Jesus wasn't killed against His will because He came here in order to die and through that bring glory to God the Father. We see that expressed in John chapter 12. Go over to John chapter 12. The night before the triumphal entry in John chapter 12, in verse 23, And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. When the hour came, before it came, nobody could change it. But when the hour came, nobody could change that. It was according to God's will. When the hour came, it couldn't be changed. And Jesus said those same words or that expressed that same sentiment to those who would arrest him, those who, would, who were going to take him into a kangaroo court where he would be tried. In Luke 22 and verse 53, Jesus said these words. He said, When I was daily with you in the temple, he stretched forth no hands against me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Meaning that what's happening right now, this is your hour. You can't change this. This is part of God's plan. And let me just make this application here, because I don't want to belabor this point too much. But let me just ask you a question. Are you struggling with God's timing in something, even today? It's unknown. I don't know what's going to happen. Or there's something I do desire that doesn't seem to be coming to pass. Struggling with God's timing in something. Well, if you're like me, you want things on your timetable and according to your plan. And it's difficult to patiently wait. But what we find here is that Jesus was submitted to the timing 
of God His Father. And of course, we can't know God's plan in advance like Jesus did. But we can know this. We can know that God is sovereign over every trial that comes into our lives. We can know, listen, by the example of Jesus Christ, that He endured the cross by trusting that the Father had a determined hour for Him. And you know what? You can endure trials. You can endure hardships. You can endure patiently waiting on things in your life, knowing that God is in control of your history. That He's the one who's directing the steps of your life if you're submitted to Him. And He wants to be glorified in your life through the things that happen in your life and especially as others begin to see you trusting God for His plan and for His time. As you go through difficulties and trials of your life, and even in life in general, it always works better when we line ourselves up with God's calendar and God's clock and let His will be done. Jesus said, Father... The hour is come. He aligned himself with the will of God. But then I want you to note this. Go to our text in John 17. And here's really the main thrust. Maybe this is about as far as we'll get today. But notice this. He said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son that thy Son also may glorify thee. Notice how Jesus sought after God's glory. Jesus sought after God's glory. We see this in verse 1 here, where He says that the Son may glorify thee, but skip down to verse 4. In verse 4, I have glorified thee. On the earth. Look at verse 5. O now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Notice the theme here, the subject, the thing that was important to Jesus as he's praying to his Father that God would get glory. And this is really what Christ's life was all about. And friend, it should be our aim as well in our life to simply give God glory. Let me ask you some questions. And I want you to think, and to think clearly and think honestly, all right? Everybody paying attention? Think about this, and I'm serious. Don't dismiss it. Don't, wherever you're at, Come here. What is it that drives your life? What is it that drives your life? Is it success in some way? Does fear drive your life? Does work drive your life? Does money drive your life? Does family drive your life? Do possessions drive your life? Does recreation and entertainment drive your life? Does guilt drive your life? Does the need for approval of others drive your life? Does resentment or anger drive your life because of some bad things that have happened to you that you can't let go of and you never stop thinking about? What drives your life? I want to propose to you that there should be only one thing that drives our life. And that's the glory of God. That should be the one thing 
that dominates and drives our life. And here's, here's what I want you to hold on to today, if nothing else. Live a life that is driven for the glory of God. Or to say it another way, let me say it like this. The greatest good that we can do is to always seek God's glory. And you and I exist for one primary purpose, and that is to give God glory. The word glory, that's one of those religious words. It's one of those religious words that we often use, but maybe don't even know what it really means. What does it mean to give God glory? What does it mean when we say, my life is to give glory to the Lord? Do you know what that means? Well, let me take a a shot at explaining it. It literally means this. Here's the definition, and then I'll, I'll give you some more to help you digest this. It literally means to be heavy or weighty. To give God glory. It means to be heavy or weighty. And it has to do with this. It has to do with reputation. It has to do with fame. It has to do with splendor and prestige. It also is related to the word magnify. The word magnify basically means that we're doing something to help others see this one thing that is very valuable and important. Does that make sense? So it's related. Giving God glory means to be weighty and it means to be heavy. It deals with reputation. It deals with fame. It deals with a person's name. It's related to the word magnify. That when we give God glory... What we're actually doing is trying to help others to see the immensity or the value of this one thing. It's magnified. The opposite of giving God glory, then, is selfishness. If I'm interested in taking credit, or I'm focusing just on my life and myself and my plans then God doesn't get glory. And according to Isaiah 42 and verse 8, God is not interested in sharing glory with anyone else. I am the Lord. That is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Isaiah 48, 11, For mine own sake, even mine own sake will I do it, for how should my name be polluted, and I will not give my glory unto another. Now the Greek word that is equated with glory basically means opinion. In other words, when someone has a high opinion of somebody else, they were giving him glory or her. The Hebrew word, on the other hand, would think of the brilliance of God's Shekinah glory. And basically what that was, was the brightness of God's presence. And it was, it was all the, the sum of all of God's attributes, all summed up into the brilliance and the brightness of the glory of God. So when we put those two things together, to give God glory means that our opinion of Him is heavy and it's weighty and He is brilliant in His beauty and our chief aim should be caught to, to be to, our chief aim should be to cause others to see the same thing. Does that make sense? Our chief aim should be to cause others to see this thing that is so brilliant and so beautiful and His name and His reputation is the thing that is paramount. And it needs to be magnified. That's what it means to give God glory. 
that his name is so weighty and, it, and, it, and it's so heavy and it's so important to his reputation to be exalted and others to be able to see the same thing. That's what it means to give God glory. Now, one thing to keep in mind is that God already has glory innately. He doesn't get that simply because of us. We simply acknowledge His glory and magnify what He already has. One man put it this way, God's glory is His reputation. To live for God's glory means to live so that God's reputation is enhanced. It is heightened in quantity and quality and not diminished in any way. That's pretty powerful when you start to think about your chief aim and chief purpose is to glorify the Lord. I read a part of a sermon written by a Puritan preacher back in the 1600s. I read it this week. And I want to share some of it because it's very helpful. It's helpful in answering the question, how do I know when my aim is the glory of God? Does that make sense? you understand the question? How do I know when I'm aiming at God's glory? The preacher offered three answers to that question. He said, number one, when we prefer God's reputation above all other things. When my chief aim is God's reputation above my own or anything else. Number two, when we're content that God's will should take place even if it crosses my own. When I'm content... That God's will is being done even if it's different than what I would desire or that I would prefer. I can tell that my aim is the glory of God. And here's number three. When we are content to be outshined by others in gifts and esteem so that His glory may be increased... When I'm okay with being outshined by others in some way so that God is magnified and that His glory is increased, then I know that my aim is His glory. You know what? Preachers do this sometimes. Preachers don't want to be outpreached by other preachers. Preachers want to stand up and give the sermon. People, preachers want to, people to look at them. People want, uh, preachers want to be magnified in their, oh, my sermon was better than his sermon, and man, I can really uh, exegete that passage way better than he can, and so on. It's garbage! It's garbage. It's the wrong spirit and the wrong attitude when we make it about us. When my aim, and I'm content with being outshined by someone else. If God is magnified, and if He's the one that's glorified, and the people, they all say, wow, to the glory of God or the person of God, then that's what's important. You understand what I'm saying? The way that we live our life needs to be a glory of God-driven life. What does it mean to give glory to God? that His reputation is magnified, that His name is weighty and heavy, and my chief purpose is to help and make sure that others see the value of Him. Our role, then, to borrow from that old preacher, is to respond with appreciation to respond with adoration and affection and subjection and submission to the Lord. And in particular, when people look at us, they should see the weightiness and the beauty of God on full display in our life. The way that you live towards others, that they would see genuine love, that they would see the love of Christ in you. Why is this true? Well, Colossians 1.18 says, For by Him, that's Christ, were all things created, 
that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by Him, and the last three words, and for Him. For Him. You were created for Him. And one clue that we care about God's glory is when we can say along with the psalmist, we read it this morning in Psalm 115 and verse 1, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto Thy name give glory, for Thy mercy and for Thy truth's sake. Not unto us. We see, I think we're going to have to wrap it up here. We're not going to make our way through all five verses. There's several more that I want to point out to you that, from these verses, but let me just summarize it here. We saw Jesus' prayer posture. He lifted up his eyes unto the Lord. It speaks to really our relationship that we can have with God because of Jesus Christ. And remember, Jesus prayed this out loud for the benefit of his disciples. Jesus called out to God by name. He called Him Father. Jesus aligned Himself with God's timetable. The hour has come. The Lord's will be done. And Jesus sought after God's glory. So let me just conclude this and let's take it home with this thought. Are you working at doing everything for the glory of God? Is that your chief aim in life? Because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. This means that it's not just church stuff or religious activity, but everything. How you do your job. How people know you on your job. How you interact with people that you disagree with. Oh, let's talk about that for a few minutes. You know what? We get this something inside of us that says, my way of thinking is the right way of thinking. And whenever there's disagreement and we don't see eye to eye, I'm the one that's right, they're the one that's wrong. And guess what starts happening next? We start chirping and we start running the mouth and we start doing all kinds of other things, bad-mouthing other people. Is that glorifying to the Lord? How we interact with other people that we don't agree with. How we treat our spouses. How we talk to our kids. How we talk to our parents. How we spend our time. You hear people say this all the time. Man, I'm just living for the weekend. Thank God it's Friday, right? Which we all do. But I'm just living for the weekend. But you know what? We ought to... We ought to actually be living for the glory of God. That should be the chief aim. In whatever situation of life you're in, you, you fill in the blank. You fill in the blank here. But are you saying, in whatever situation, I want God to be glorified more than anything else through this or in this? I was challenged by John eleven four when I was studying and reading this because in that context where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, where he lifted up his eyes and he prayed to the Father and so on, right before that, in verse 4, when Jesus was talking about Lazarus being sick and people were just all frantic of, of the problem and the trouble that was here, Jesus said these words. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God 
might be glorified thereby. And you know what? It reminded me that even in times of sickness, even in times of sadness, even in times of stress, God still wants glory from it in your life. If we don't short-circuit the process, this is for the glory of God. Amen? Let's ask the Lord to help us live a glory, God-glory-driven life. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God. But it's impossible to live for the glory of God without complete surrender to Him, without declaring Him Lord over every area of our life. And so the question is, are you working at doing everything for the glory of God? The second question is, have you surrendered to Christ? Is there something that you're holding back? And let me, let me close with this. There's, there's an author <clears throat> that I read after sometimes. In one of his books, the, the title of the book is, It's Not About Me, or It's Not About You. He says this, he writes this. He writes that we live in a me-centric world where everything revolves around my happiness, my wants, my pleasure, me. Up until 450 years ago, everybody believed that the universe and the sun and the planets revolved around the earth. Then in 1543, Copernicus told them that the earth wasn't the center of the universe. Fifty years later, Galileo said that the planets revolved around the sun. They were so opposed to this idea that they threw him in prison and kicked him out of the church. The very idea that we weren't the center of the universe was unthinkable. I think that we can take a valuable lesson from that. And here's the lesson. You and I, we're not the center of the universe. The world doesn't revolve around you or me. God's priority isn't your comfort. God's priority isn't your happiness. And God's priority certainly isn't your pleasure. The truth is, it's not about you and me at all. It's all about Him and His glory. That's the theme that Jesus focused on, the glory of God the Father. And I would simply encourage you and challenge you today, as I have been challenged myself, may it be so in our lives as well. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, use your word. Challenge us with it today. And I do pray, Lord, for those who are not saved. They've been living their life for themselves. They've been trying to gain in this world. Maybe haven't reached that. Maybe even life seems to be frustrating. Well, I know, Lord, that you have a time and a plan. And you have purposed to give the light of yourself to every man that cometh into this world. It's not accident, it's divine appointment. When you introduce yourself into people's lives. And Lord, I'm praying this morning for those who have not been saved, who've never yielded their will to God, who've never repented of their sin, who've never called on the name of the Lord. Or would you work in their life to draw them to Christ? You receive much glory from what Jesus did when He died on the cross. He said, I finished the work that you've given me to do on the earth. And thereby, God the Father is glorified. And Lord, I pray for the one who's not been saved, that you'd work in them to draw them to Jesus Christ today. Pray for the believer, Lord, that you'd help us and remind us, 
Lord, that my chief end is simply to glorify the Lord, to magnify His name, His reputation, and to cause others to see, accurately see Him on display in my life. And Lord, may these thoughts be weighty to us today, that you'd use them for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.